0: Well, hey, everybody. It's good to be with you today. How are you doing? Everyone okay? Okay, I'm feeling it. That's great. That's great. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it's great to be with you. And I do have to say a word about last week. I know your host has already mentioned that a bit, but it was just so amazing to see all the ways that, that God is using Chase Oaks, is using you to make a difference all throughout the world. And so if you didn't see that message, if you didn't grab a report, Make sure to go out and get that and grab that and watch the message. You're going to be encouraged and inspired. And I also need to say a word about next week, too, because your host has talked about that, too. But it is Easter, and I got a sneak peek of the opener, and you're going to want to be here on time. It's going to be amazing. Grab your friends. Make sure you come. It's going to be just an incredibly inspiring service that you're not going to want to miss. But for this weekend, we are closing out our series on the life of Abraham. And as we've seen throughout this series, he was both a man that was uh, full of faith, but also somebody that was far from perfect. And so we're going to see this both and play into one of the aspects of his life that we're talking about this weekend, and that is his marriage. And so we're going to pick up at the end of this very long, lifelong, fulfilling marriage to Sarah, right at the end of this marriage in Genesis 23. And this is what it says in verse 1. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. That's a good life. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and weep over her. If Sarah was married at the typical age that they were in the ancient Near East culture, she likely would have been 15 when she tied the knot with Abraham. Which, I'm a pastor, I'm not very good at math, but if I did the math, and I did beforehand... That's an 112-year-long marriage over a century together. Not bad, right? Can you even imagine? Don't look at your spouse right now. That'll get kind of awkward. Like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. That's a long time. Like, uh, I don't even know after 100 years. You know, what do you even get each other when it's your anniversary at that point? I mean, there used to be those lists. I don't know if people still do this anymore, but there's these lists that are out about what you're supposed to get each year of your marriage. Uh, and so just to remind you what you probably should have been doing all along, here's a few of them that stand out to me. The second anniversary is fiber. Uh, actually, I think it's more about fabric that's being woven together, but maybe when it's your second year of your marriage, all you can, avo- uh, all you can afford is whole grain bread. You have a great digestive system, too. It's going to be awesome. So maybe you should try that if you've only been married two years. That's great. Tenth anniversary is aluminum because, hey, we've been married a decade. Here's a canned good from me to you. Or the 18th anniversary is porcelain because nothing says happy anniversary like installing a toilet. You know, just make that happen. That's great. And the classic is the 60th anniversary is the diamond. You probably should consider getting a diamond before the 60th anniversary as well, but that is the classic one that's there too. But I could tell you something that's not on any of the lists that I looked at, and that is what do you get somebody for their 112th anniversary? And, and, and not only does that seem unrealistic uh, for the one reason being that most of us don't expect to live to be 112 years old, but it probably strikes us as unrealistic already, maybe a little too idealistic, because the thought of even being married 40 years or 50 years or 60 years is starting to seem more and more like a pipe dream. Kind of like something that maybe it happens for a few people who get to experience it, but if they do, they, they possibly lucked in to that kind of relationship. There's some of us that are probably wondering even if we want to be married for that long uh, and have that type of long-lasting marriage. I mean, uh, more and more times today, I think all of us want fulfilling relationships. We want depth of connection with each other. But I think more and more people are starting to question whether or not marriage is the right vehicle for that type of relationship. I mean, often today you start to talk to more and more people that they view marriage as something that is restrictive or stifling or possibly even unhealthy. And a lot of times it's based off of maybe an experience that we've had either in the household that we grew up in or in a previous marriage or our current marriage that we have. My hope today is that God would re-envision us a bit on what marriage is and what marriage can be, and really re-envision all of us, whatever our relationship status and history and past and goals are, that he would re-envision us for how we can actually find the type of fulfilling relationships that we all want and we all desire. I don't know where in your life right now, with your relationship life, where it feels far from perfect right now, whether it's a loneliness situation or if it is something in your current marriage or dating relationship or whatever. And I I would encourage you, I know it's kind of hard, you don't have to say this to anybody out loud, but I would keep that front of mind as we're talking today because I really do hope that you would leave here inspired a little bit more that, that God wants this area of our life to be good. But as we talk about it, something that we need to acknowledge and kind of bring to the surface is there's a lot of Cultural narratives that are out there when it comes to our relationships that are actually holding us back from the type of fulfillment that we, we typically want, that we definitely want. Uh, there's a quote from Dave Ramsey. He's a financial kind of expert and guru. Uh, he says something like this this, that, that if you want to live like no one else later, you need to live like no one else today. And when he's talking about it, he's talking about finances, you know, how most people kind of get into a place where later down the road they're they're kind of living paycheck to paycheck and it winds up taking them to a place that they don't want to be. Um, but I think it also applies to relationships and marriage as well. That if normal marriage winds up kind of leading down a path that, that many of us have seen in a place of kind of unfulfillment or maybe stagnation or or maybe just frustration, what does abnormal look like? Like, what do those couples do that kind of buck the trend and kind of push against some of the narratives that are out there? And to help us talk about that, I want to look at an abnormal couple, an abnormal marriage, and that is between Sarah and Abraham. And actually, the way that their love story starts out and is told is very different than the way that love stories are typically told in our culture today. Um, I, uh, most of our movies kind of follow a traditional pattern when it talks about romance and relationships. Like I, and for the record, I have no problem at all with rom-coms. I'm kind of a big fan. I've seen my share of Hallmark movies as well. So record, I, I'm not hating on that at all. I'm a big fan of all of that, but I know the general flow of how they tend to go as well. It's Christmas time and Holly Noel Evergreen is dating a lawyer from the big city Have you seen that one? You've seen that one? Okay, good. Maybe I'm the only one. And we all just know that that lawyer is just so, he's so wrong for her. And we know that. And then we're so glad when she escapes to the mountains back to her hometown and she meets Nick, the Christmas tree farmer. And when does the story end? It, it, It ends when they find each other. When they say, I do, or they kiss, or there's something about the story and the tension really being resolved is being found or finding somebody. I think that's important for us to know because the story for Abraham and Sarah starts a lot differently. Like they find each other in Genesis chapter 11 and we don't really know exactly all the details, just that they found each other and they did. And then in Genesis chapter 12, we learn that life has not been particularly easy for them. It's that kind of that problem that they had that a lot of us have struggled with as well, where they were struggling with Maybe uh, uh, with infertility and that they desperately wanted to have kids, but somehow that hadn't been brought up in their life. Or um, that life had been challenging and full of different imperfections. I think it's important for us to recognize how their story goes, because there's something that I like to call the perfect person myth. It's this myth, it goes a little bit something like this, that if I find the right person, everything will be all right. That if I was just to get with the best person, the rest will all come together. And everybody that's married starts to laugh right now. And and really all of us know that there's something about that, that that isn't quite right. That when you actually bring that to the surface, it's like, yeah, you know what? I know that's not the way that it really works. That somehow finding the right person is just going to solve all my problems. And yet... We kind of have that underneath the surface quite a bit, that it kind of invades our life and it pops up in different ways and in different times. And maybe if you find yourself saying some of these other phrases, it might be that you're following a little bit of that cultural narrative. Where if you say something like, hey, if, if this was meant to be right, why would it, why is it so hard? Or shouldn't love come more naturally? I mean, if it, if it was, if this was true love, it wouldn't be difficult. And the challenge with this myth is that it fuels our fantasies. And it makes us feel like that the, the biggest problem that we have is finding the right person. And, and sometimes, and this is how it shows up for, for those of us that are married, it could show up in this way where we say, you know what, that if, if my life isn't going super great and I'm with this person, that maybe somehow I found the wrong right person. Or it can show up this way that if we're single, that our biggest problem that we have in our life is being found or finding somebody that would come into my life. What I love about the Abraham and Sarah story is that it shatters the perfect person myth right from the start. I mean, the Bible, I love the Bible. It doesn't hide any of the imperfections that they have. Like, uh, Abraham is far from being the perfect husband, um, and we've seen that throughout this series. Uh, I don't have time to recap all of it, but if you go back to week two, Jeff talked about how uh, there was this time in his life where in order to protect himself, Abraham tells a lie, and as a result of telling that lie, Sarah winds up in Pharaoh's harem, And then, uh, you know, God would have to intervene and he does in a big way to kind of rescue out of her situation. But imagine that first conversation when she gets back home and she says something like, what were you thinking? And probably adds in a few choice words on top of everything with that, too. And get this. And we didn't even cover this in this series. Abraham will do that again in Genesis chapter 20. So you may not be the perfect husband, but I'm guessing you haven't given your wife away twice to a harem. You give me a look at your wife and say, I haven't even done that once. You know, I'm doing pretty good here. Sarah is also far from perfect as well. And we've seen that in this series. Greg talked about that, where during the situation where she gets impatient with God, she starts to get frustrated that he had promised that she would have kids, that it hadn't happened yet, that that she gets in this situation with Hagar, where she has Hagar, her servant, sleep with Abraham. It's a real mess. And throughout that whole process, she mistreats Hagar. There's a lot of mess that comes as a result of that. She's not perfect either. And their life was far from perfect. I mean, um, you know, throughout their life, they, they know the challenge of of infertility and the pain that comes from that. They're constantly on the move. They deal with famines and, you know, insecurity and moving back. They They have extended family issues with their nephew, Lot. I mean, who of us don't have extended family issues as well? Life is far from perfect for them. And yet... What does an abnormal couple like them do? They are able to find a purpose that powers them through the imperfections and the uncertainty of life. I love how the book of Hebrews describes Abraham and it's about his faith journey. But honestly, it's kind of a good a good way to describe marriage as well. And this is in Hebrews eleven eight. 8 says by faith. Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. I love that last phrase. He did not know where he was going. It's both a great way to describe the faith journey in general, but I think it's also a great way to describe marriage as well. I mean, when any of us say, I do, it is a leap of faith. I mean, we could be wise about who we decide to marry, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But none of us know exactly all that's going to be coming down the road in what our relationship will look like. Like uh, for my wife, Amy, I, I would love to say that my wife married the perfect person. I mean, we would, we would all love to be able to say that. Um, but I can't. And, and honestly, the reason why I can't say that is it wouldn't be fair to her. Um, uh, there was no way for me to know. I mean, I, looking back, I, I can say that um, I believe that God brought us together and that we're really compatible. I deeply believe those things, but I didn't know that at the time that we were getting that we were dating. I knew her to be incredibly smart and humble and kind. I knew that she loved Jesus. I knew that she was beautiful. I knew that there was a long list of things that I was like, okay, this is an amazing person. Honestly, it was kind of intimidating to me, knowing that when I looked at all those different characteristics, that any number of people would have been really lucky to be married to her. It was so intimidating, in fact, that when we, uh, when I proposed, on the day uh, that I proposed, I still was like trying to make my case in my head, you know? Um, I was like, okay, I've got to, i just got to make sure, I mean, she's, you know, you know, just make sure she's convinced. And keep in mind, I was about 40 pounds lighter than I am right now. Like I could have been blown over in the wind. Let's just put it that way. And so I remember going up to her and, and, you know, after I proposed and I was like, you know, I'm just trying to spin that a little bit. And I said, you know, Amy, uh, you know, skinny guys are like fine wine. We only get better with age. And I think I think she bought it. I mean, we're married, so I guess she did buy it. But even then, after we got married, there was no way that we would know at that point all the different things that would come in our journey. All the ups and downs and ways that we would change and grow and things we would learn about ourselves and struggles that we would have. There was no way of knowing all of that. But in the midst of all of that uncertainty, there was a purpose that has powered us and has kept us moving forward. It's a purpose that I think Abraham and Sarah have also discovered in their relationship too. I, I like how John Mark Comer words it. He's a pastor and an author and he talks about this purpose that helps push people through imperfection and uncertainty, especially marriage. And he says it this way. He says, the point of marriage isn't to find our missing half. It's to help each other become all that God intended. Our future real selves. In marriage, two people partner to that end. They see the best in each other, the person God created them to be, and they push and pull each other toward that goal. By the way, as a, as a side note, an important side note, that, that that principle doesn't just apply to married couples. We all need healthy and helpful friendships that, that help us go further and farther than we could ever get to on our own. Particularly, as an example, some of my friends who have chosen to be single. Um, The the way that our church uh, teaches about marriage is that marriage is a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. Now, I know that not everybody here that's watching or in this room uh, agrees with that. And that's okay. You don't have to believe that to belong here. And wherever you land on that, we're we're glad you're here. But that is the way that we teach on it. And some of my friends that are here who are same-sex attracted do believe that. And they have that as a conviction of theirs. Which means that they have made the courageous decisions an inspiring decision to me to be single. But even in the sense that they have made that decision to be single does not mean that they've chosen to be alone. Because all of us need healthy and helpful friendships that can push and pull and partner with us to be all that God created us to be. But there is something unique about the marriage relationship that I think makes this uniquely powerful. And I think it comes to the abnormal commitment that couples make with each other. That the way that God designed marriage to be was a lifelong, one flesh, bring two people together for a commitment that would create a space for intimacy, a space for authenticity, a space for growth and refinement, that in the midst of all the ups and downs, the, the for richer and poorer, the sickness and in health, and all of the changes that happen in life, that there would be an environment of safety and intimacy where we could actually become more and more of who we're supposed to be and refine each other along the way. Now, it's easy for us to say that kind of thing and just say, oh, that's great. That's marriage. And and it's far different for us to actually experience that in our relationships together. And so if you're married, I'd love to take a moment here to do what I call the abnormal couple test. And again, there's not, it's not like a written test. I mean, it's just in your mind here. But as, as you think of, is my marriage a place of abnormal commitment? I think there are four different characteristics that we kind of just even covered in what we shared in there that, that as you think about it, just say, hey, how are we, how are we doing in our relationship? Are we more in the flow of what most marriages tend to be or have we kind of been in the more abnormal side? And as I say these four characteristics, they're kind of, you know, it's a relationship message. So they're in couples. You know, there's two that kind of go hand in hand with each other. The first one is purpose and partnership. And the second one is authenticity and safety. Let me start with purpose and partnership. That the, the best couples, the couples that have that long lasting abnormal connection have an abnormal purpose for them. That they do see that as, hey, this is not just a place that is for my happiness. The happiness can be So, so fleeting. And if that's our main purpose of being together, it's like, well, that can, that can go in an instance. But if our purpose is to propel each other for who God's called us to be, that's, that's a lot deeper of a, of a connection there. And then in that goal, we have to partner together in an abnormal way to say, okay, I'm not uh, thick and thin. I'm, I'm with you. And we're pulling and we're pushing to make sure that that happens. And what that also takes is abnormal authenticity to get there. And what I mean by that is that both people in the couple in the relationship have kind of made a decision to say, I'm going to not hide my imperfections, but actually be open and honest uh, about them so that I can bring them out and actually connect with my spouse as we help pull and push each other in there. And that takes safety. One of the biggest dangers of the perfect person myth is not just that we're looking for the perfect person, but also in those situations where we try to be the perfect person. And here's what I mean how that gets dangerous. I mean, that sounds nice to say out loud. But what I mean by that is when we start to hide parts of our story or hide parts of our struggle from someone that we're in a relationship with. And I get why that is dicey and challenging. And sometimes we need help with it. But when we hide those things, we are actually building a wall brick by brick between the person that we most deeply want to connect with. That nothing erodes intimacy like inauthenticity. But it does take safety to be able to do that. Now, Some of us here, when I talk about safety, we are in relationships that, if we're being honest, are not safe. And if I can be honest with you, are not safe. If you are in an abusive situation, that is not merely an imperfection to push through. Could you hear me on that? Like, it is not something to just say, okay, I'm going to stick with it. It's going to get, that is something that you need to get help with. You need to get out with, you need to get out of, you need to call the police. You can call us, but that is not something to just put out with, please get some help with that. But there are others of us, as we look over those four characteristics and we think about our own relationship, we're like, okay, it's not an abusive situation, but if I'm being honest, it's also not quite where it needs to be either. And, and the thing with a normal, in the normal world, most, most couples do is it's just easier to blow that stuff kinda off and say, you know what, like, man, I'd just rather not deal with it. But abnormal couples, the ones that have that longevity, the one that have that kind of fulfillment, have actually made a deeper commitment to say, you know what, we're gonna press in and get help if we need it, we're gonna do the counseling, we're gonna talk to people, we're gonna do the groups, because it's worth it for that purpose that we have. That's marriage. Now I know some of us here are saying, "Okay, I, I that that's great, but I'm single, and I you know I, that all sounds wonderful, and I would love to I would love to have that." And 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 so that's an interesting thing that I'd love to transition to talk about because I think the same principle applies there as well. That if we want a marriage like no one else, we we probably need to date like no one else either. But I know that that's challenging and tricky. In fact, uh, that was something that Abraham himself struggled with too, um, and that's where we're going to get into a really fun story. A- after Abraham, uh, after Sarah passed away, Abraham would live another 38 years. It's a long, long time. And and let me make a note on that too, because I think this is important. That some of us in this room, some of us that are watching, have lost a spouse. In fact, I'm thinking of a few of you right now. And that is one of those times where it could start to feel like, okay, is is my purpose done? And I hope what you would learn, and I hope what you would discover as you're navigating the grief of that, what Abraham discovered, that God wasn't finished with him yet. He's not finished with you either. There's still big things that need to be done. There's still... Lives to impact and purposes to achieve and to press in on that. For Abraham, he had a big purpose to complete. And in this case, it was to carry on the promise. You know, after his wife passed away, he was thinking of the next generation. He was thinking of his son, Isaac. And knowing that Isaac needed to find a mate that was similar to his relationship with Sarah, someone that would continue on the promise. Now, in that culture, that was Abraham's responsibility to find a mate for Isaac, for uh, for his son, um, which might strike a few of us as strange. I mean, in our culture, I, I know there are other cultures that, that do, and some of us come from that, um, where it was the parents' responsibility to set that up, but that's not uh, the way it is for most of us. And so as we read this story, some of what we're about to read as we see how uh, Abraham went about trying to get a spouse for Isaac might strike us as a little strange or creepy. And I have a theory about all of this, that most love stories are just a few degrees away from being creepy when you really think about it. Like, uh, for instance, uh, when uh, Amy and I were dating, we knew each other for five years before uh, we started dating. Um, I was interested right away. Her, not so much. Like, I was put... Very strongly into the friend zone and uh, it took me multiple years to get out of the friend zone Now when I share that story today, most people are like, oh, that is so romantic Oh, he pursued you Man, he was persistent and, oh, that's just so sweet. That, that's what I hear from most people, which is great. Uh, because of how it worked out, you know, <laughs> like it, we're, we, it, it was great. But imagine if it didn't work out. Like, I wouldn't be romantic, I would be the stalker. And their friends wouldn't be like, oh, you know, they'd be like, is he in jail now? I mean, that, remember that creepy guy that just wouldn't leave you alone? And then, you know, he just kept coming around and it took like five years for you to get like there, you know, so context matters in these type of things. And there's some cultural stuff that's happening in here, too. But I actually think as we see God kind of work through Abraham in this selection process, that there's some things if you're if you're thinking about how do I find and start an abnormal uh, marriage, I think there's some things we can learn from it here too. So let's read this together. This is in Genesis 24. Abraham now was very old. That's putting it nicely. Um, and the Lord blessed him in every way. And he said to the senior servant of his household, the one in charge of all he had put your hand under my thigh. Now, by the way, um, if you need something from me, please do not put your hand under my thigh. This used to be a way to swear an oath. I'm glad that tradition is done. But this was what was happening. He was swearing an oath. And this is continuing on. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of Canaan among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives to get a wife for my son, Isaac. Uh, Abraham is very concerned about the promise that God had given him, that had laid into his family to carry on. And he was so concerned about it that it was something that was worth being picky about. In fact, he sends his servant on a journey that um, is 500 miles north of where he was at because it was so important for him to be picky about that. And that brings me to principle number one of how to choose well. Know what you're looking for. Know what you're looking for. You know, um, for Abraham, he was looking for somebody that would uh, would be as faithful and, and, and a great journey mate um, that Sarah had been for him. And the same is true for for us as well, that that what we're looking for is somebody that can journey with us, that can be a great journey mate with us along the way. And for those of us that follow Jesus, if we've made that commitment, what we've said is that, uh, you know, a lot of our journey may be undefined and we're not exactly sure all that will happen, but we have made a decision to say that the most important thing of our journey is that we're following hard after Jesus and that we want his path to be the path that, that leads to life and leads to fulfillment. And that's what we want to follow along with. And so as we think about the top of the list, as you think of who to look for, Finding a fellow Christ follower has to be at the top of the list. The way that Paul talks about this in the New Testament is he says to not be unequally yoked. It's a farming metaphor where you have two oxen that that are pulling a cart and they're actually connected by a yoke, a a big wooden connecting piece. And the idea is is that if one of the oxen is kind of either weaker or always constantly pulling to the side, that no matter how hard you try, it's like the the journey always has just this kind of off-kilteredness to it. And he says... In your relationship, particularly in your marriage, to not be unequally yoked. And I know that there are some here that are in this room that uh, that are married and they're not married to a Christ follower. There are lots of ways that that happens. And there's ways to be faithful about that. That's uh, God. God works through all of that. But I think if you were to talk to them, they would say, hey, it's complicated too. And that if I'm starting fresh, if we're trying to actually align my life with someone else, that it just... Following this advice makes all the difference in the world. Along with that, though, of of looking of knowing what you're looking for and finding a great journey made, I've just found that, um, that you know if you are looking for someone, it's it's helpful to be on the journey already. Um and I I don't just mean that from, hey, growing in your faith. I mean you need to be doing that too, but, but to not be waiting on just a spouse or someone to to come, but instead to say, okay, God has gifted me, He is using me, He has a purpose for my life. I don't need to follow the perfect person myth that my life is waiting for someone to come to fulfill me. But instead, that as I am on this journey and living into my strengths and gifts, that that along the way, that's often when we meet someone who can align with us in that journey too. So, know what you're looking for. The second principle we saw already from what we read too is uh, is that Abraham involved a trusted friend. Uh, he involved uh, uh, his closest servant. We think it was one of his uh, dearest friends named Eleazar. Uh, someone that had been with him for a long time. And he sends Eleazar on on a journey. And that brings me to uh, the second principle for us too. Is that if you are trying to find someone, involve trusted people. Like people that when you're making a decision or you're going on a date or you're thinking about, that they can knock us upside the head and say, Hey, remember what you're looking for. And that ain't it. People that can kind of... Help us and they say, hey, I know the big goals that you have for your life. I am for you and you know that and we need to listen to those people. And Abraham involved one of those people in his life. He sent his friend on this journey to do it and Eliezer goes on this journey. And as he goes on this journey, uh, the 500 uh, mile journey north, Um, He gets to uh, abraham's old hometown and he prays for wisdom Which is a good thing to do if we're looking for someone uh, that can join us on our journey So he prays and this is what he prays in genesis 24 verse 12. He says then he prayed. Oh lord god of my master abraham Give me success today and show kindness to my master abraham See, I am standing beside the spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Now. I don't recommend setting specific tests for God. (laughs) Like, please don't leave here and say, well, the next one that walks into Chick-fil-A is the one, you know. Um, That's how you're the creepy guy (laughs) if you do it that way. So don't do it that way. But I do think it's important to think about what LEAs are praised for because it's significant what he decides to pray for in this instant. Um, He prays that, hey, when he goes out there and he asks for a drink, someone would come up and be hospitable and offer him a drink, that then this person would actually go above and beyond their hospitality. That they would actually offer to water his camels. And it's important for us to know the context of this because a camel that's thirsty could drink about 50 gallons in a few minutes of water. And so if he has 10 camels that are thirsty, you do the math. That's 500. See? Again, pastors, we can do math sometimes too. Imagine the amount of hospitality. Imagine the amount of servanthood that it would take to, for someone to do this. And that brings me to the third principle of what to look for. Look for uncommon character. Look for those people that are kind when no one's looking. For that person who is sacrificial. For that person who speaks well of others when they're not around. On the flip side, I would say keep an eye out for those red flags that you know are red flags that we dismiss of like, oh, it's no big deal. It's like it is a big deal. To look for that uncommon character because that makes all the difference in the world. And so, he prays this and right after he prays this, it's fascinating. It's like, you know, he prays and all of a sudden this person shows up named Rebecca. It's like just out of the blue. And Goes with everything that he had prayed for in this instance. He, you know, she shows up and she's like, hey, let me water your camels too. And if, if we were in that moment and this person shows up right after we prayed for it, we'd be like, you know, this is the one. Like, this is amazing. Like, oh, it's got to be the way it is. You know, this is exactly what God. And I find it fascinating what Eliezer does right after this because he does something completely different than what I would have done. Um, In Genesis 24, 21, he says, Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. Meaning, he proceeded cautiously. He said, I think this is what God's up to. I think this is it, but I'm not sure. He took his time. that brings me to the fourth and final one. Take your time. Like, if us choosing somebody to join us on our journey is one of, it's one of the most critical decisions we'll ever make to take our time. And it's so easy in these moments to kind of get caught up in emotion and kind of like, oh, this is it. And I, I've often recommended to couples to taking at least a year together, which I know sounds kind of crazy, but I just, I, and this isn't a rule or anything. It's just the wisdom of saying that sometimes there's something to seeing somebody through all the different seasons of the year of just what they're like throughout the different ups and downs and, and being able to see that, that can make a huge impact in our lives. So take your time. So the story does end where, uh, Rebecca is the one that God brought into, uh, uh, Isaac's life and she does come back and, and they, it's amazing that, that, that God works and they're, uh, He blesses them. He, He Uses them to continue the purpose of what he would do through the nation of Israel, and yet their life would be far from perfect as well, too. And so today, as we kind of wrap up, as we talked about a lot, um, I want to ask you to think about where you're at when it comes to your relationships you know when when we talk about the normal uh, versus the abnormal when we talk about the 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 abnormal people that somehow have figured out a way to find the fulfilling life and and somehow have broken the mold and pushed against it versus some of the ways that we can drift relationally i just want you to say is there is there a way when you think of either your marriage or your dating life or even just your friendships where you started to drift a little bit into normal where We've started to kind of not fight for that bigger purpose in our life. Or maybe the authenticity in our marriage is just not, not where it needs to be. Or maybe we haven't done the work we need to do to create a space of safety with that person that's closest to us. Or, or if you're dating, if maybe there's just a, you're, you're on this path and you're like, man, you're excited about something. And yet when you think about it, it's like, hey, I, my dating life is actually kind of normal right now. And I don't want a normal marriage. I want an abnormal one. You know, as you think about all of this, what encourages me is that when we're in these moments, all of us, when we think back on our relationship life, even where we're at right now, we could probably all say that it's far from perfect. And we could probably all have regrets and shame and guilt and all of those things. And, and I don't think that that's what God wants it for us in this moment. I think what he wants is he wants to meet us wherever we're at with his grace and with his empowerment and say, I want this area of your life to be good. And I'm willing to meet with you there and help you. It's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be full of purpose. And so with that, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are a God who is not caught up by our far from perfect past, our far from perfect relationships. Father, we know that you want to meet us wherever we're at with your grace and your empowerment and your wisdom that you want our closest relationships to be good and that in a culture and in a world that tends to just have an undercurrent that undermines the closeness of our relationships Father would you meet us with your grace and your empowerment to help us push against that would you make us a little bit more abnormal so that we could have a marriage or dating life or friendships like no one else in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen.